Greetings, Minecrafters, and welcome to episode 13, Social Media and Well-Being. You know, last week we were talking about uh, you know, making that shift from a negative stress mindset to a positive stress mindset. In the episode before that, um, due to requests from, from my listeners, uh, we were talking about being good enough, specifically during this pandemic crisis. Right. And, and now, you know, right away, I just got this wave of let's talk about social media and its effect on well-being. And it kind of there's a thread here. There's definitely a thread here, because if we think about the being good enough piece, there's a large degree of social comparison involved. And I actually did research just two years ago uh, with traditional college students in New England and so I'll talk a little bit about that. But, you know, right now, quite honestly, this chat would have been easier pre-pandemic because now there's kind of this this ironic, you know, um, you know, because we are all we are all craving connection. And <clears throat> my students would probably get a chuckle because I'm kind of known as like the cell phone police, because, of course, I think I've mentioned we practice mindfulness in every class I teach for just a minute, just a minute when we start the class. And the first thing I do before that, and then of course, after a couple of days, they're kind of trained and they do it on their own. I have them put their cell phones, which I refer to as crack cocaine, affectionately, of course, I have them put their crack cocaine underneath their chairs on the floor because, you know, years ago, having them just turn it off wasn't working, right? It'd be in their pocket where it shouldn't be because of radiation, but that's another story. It would buzz or bling or ding, and then, you know, out they go, and that traffic is just so distracting. So I'd have them put it on the floor, and it has worked like a charm. And um, honestly, I think they are grateful for it because it kind of gives them permission to be in the moment. So that said, they know that, you know, I really limit all of that in my life, and we do a whole thing in positive psychology and, the, and in the Mindcraft course that I teach about the detriments of social media. So I think you know, kind of that reputation of, you know, kind of anti-technology, which, of course, I'm not really anti-anything um, because, again, the spectrum thing, right? Rarely in life, you know, are things polarized one way or the other. And so now with this whole pandemic thing, it actually did bring this up because when our students got sent home and we got sent home during the pandemic. I continued to teach all my classes, you know, virtually didn't miss one actually for the entire time that the class went for and never was I so grateful for technology than during this pandemic. Um, you know, I, I would actually, you know, when I would go into the class on zoom or Google meets or whatever it is, you know, five or six minutes early, that my, most of my students were already there and they were just chit-chatting and talking about all different things. And um, never was I so grateful for technology than now. And in fact, in my positive and psych and Minecraft classes, we also, the, that minute of mindfulness is also followed by a gratitude share because they keep gratitude uh, journals. And I even shared one day and I watched them just chuckle around the room. I was actually grateful for, for technology because it enabled us to, you know, to continue to meet together, not ideal and weird and strange and different for most of them, at least in the beginning. Um, but I was, you know, so grateful that to have it because had this pandemic happened 
30 years ago, that would just would have been it for school. Goodbye done, you know, and uh, they've been so, they've been really struggling, many of them with anxiety and depression and, you know, being ripped out of their independent lives and, and being sent home. And the social media has really helped them to maintain connections. So in a way, it is a little harder. In a way, it isn't because social comparison itself is a straight road to unhappiness. So that's what we're going to talk about today in this episode. So uh, two years ago when I did my research, I, I based it on a couple of theories. And the first one is social comparison theory. And that, uh, what, that uh, Leanne Festinger came up with that back in the early 1950s. And just think about this, how this bridges from the 1950s until now, because he figured out that, uh, you know, people comparing ourselves against other people, what we're doing, having, how we're looking, images, whatever, was a straight road to unhappiness. And think about the 50s. How do we know who had what in the 50s, right? We, you know, this actually predates me, but we, we you know, look out the window and see, oh, the Murphys have a new station wagon. We'd have to actually physically, you know, notice something. And the Murphys could be, you know, on the on the down low, right, on the DL, keeping their brand new shiny station wagon in the garage. And so it's not in everybody's faces. And so the point is we had to actually stumble on something or see something. We wouldn't know if we weren't invited to something unless, you know, somebody was kind of unkind and shoving it in our faces or we accidentally fell upon somebody's invitation or whatever. But we wouldn't know if we weren't invited to something. We wouldn't know if, you know, you know, six of our friends we haven't seen in a long time were able to go on vacation and we weren't allowed, we weren't able to, allowed to, couldn't afford it, whatever. We didn't know unless it was directly in our, you know, in our faces. You know, now in 2020, it's amazing that Leon Festinger's theory is still alive and well and been exacerbated to the nth degree because especially the younger generation, but this is true for any of any of you listening out there. I'm 55. If you're in your 50s and you're listening, we are still getting on social media, and this is still true for us. It's just that the younger generation, the millennials, the iGens now, those currently in college or the Gen Zs, have grown up with this. You know, when they were born, technology was already here. So those those of us who are seasoned folks, this is kind of hard for us to understand their reality a little bit. Um, and obviously the iPhones and, you know, they do everything but make you dinner. They are, they have access to the world instantaneously. They can just look up anything at any time, 24 seven. And anyone who's aware of this generation or you are this generation, at least my students tell me too, that they actually feel pressure to be connected. You know, that FOMO thing, right? If you're missing out, they feel pressure to be connected 24 seven, which from a mindfulness perspective is, you know, ripping them out of the present moment, which means it's ripping them out of life. And what many of these young adults don't realize is that the very second, the very split second, millisecond, they check their phone when it blings, dings, buzzes, comes up with some fancy ringtone, whatever. The minute they check it and see whatever in social media there's an immediate mood change immediately. Now it can be positive, right? Oh, so-and-so, you know, just got into wherever they're trying to get into. So-and-so just had a new baby. 
you know, however, much of the time, this is not positive. And, you know, so-and-so went on a, ca- a vacation again that we couldn't afford. Um, this is obviously pre, pre-pandemic, that particular example. The, all the relationship stuff, so-and-so's in a relationship and I'm not. You know, so-and-so looks amazing and I don't. So-and-so just lost all this weight and I can't. Uh, so-and-so has this, has that, got into here, got into there, got the new job, had the new baby, as a husband, as a wife, as a partner. So-and-so got a new golden retriever, puppy, you know, whatever. And what's the matter with me that I'm not able to do all of this? And, you know, even for us seasoned folks, um, my listeners out there who are seasoned, we do the same thing. We're probably just a little less apt to admit it. We might um, have a partner and both be working, right? And we go on social media and see our friends who are also in their 50s. Let's say last year with the pandemic thing, the travel example is a little different. Um, and they're, they were able to take their young adult kids on, on a cruise or on a nice vacation. And we're both working too, right? We th- and we're thinking to ourselves, we're happy for them at the same time, like, What's the matter? Why, why, do, why can't we afford that? Why can't we do that? We just had to put on a new roof. You know, they must be making more than me. Why am I this? Why am I not farther along in my life? And then this is often um, followed by a guilt chaser. I'm thinking like a beer chaser, right? A guilt chaser, because if we are fond of the people who are being successful, however you define that, right? Materially speaking or travel wise or whatever, then there's like this, this, this guilt chaser that now I feel like horrible, like a horrible human being because I'm feeling less than by comparing myself to friends and I should be happy for them that they're off you know, on a cruise with their young adults. I wish we could too, but I should be happy for them. And then we feel like crap about ourselves. Okay, so there are two directions that we can compare ourselves and measure ourselves up against other people. And one is referred to as upward social comparison. And this is when we compare ourselves to someone who we perceive to have it better than we do, you know, superior in some way, whether it's money, looks, you know, material, whatever, whatever we perceive somebody to be in a better place than we are. And downward comparison is when we compare ourselves to someone who we perceive to have it not as good as we do, you know, not as attractive, not as much money, it doesn't go on vacations, not in a relationship, you know, whatever. And you would think, you know, so sometimes we go the downward comparison route because it can make us feel better to compare ourselves to someone we perceive to not have it as good. And sadly, uh, or either way we compare, it doesn't doesn't come out good for us because if we compare to those above us, obviously we come up feeling less than, not enough, all these ways we're not measuring up, Right. When we compare ourselves in the other direction, we might have this immediate kind of feel-good fix, you know, in our heads, ooh, I'm doing better than they are, I'm making more, or I'm still working and they got laid off or whatever. And then that's followed by the guilt chaser again because, um, you know, the ego might be kind of looking for that fix of feeling better about ourselves, but that's fleeting, right? After we get that, ooh, I'm doing better than they are, or I'm in a relationship and they're not or whatever, then we often, you know, feel badly because even if we're not conscious of any of this, right, what was my need, you know, to boost myself up at somebody else's expense, even if they don't know, they're not aware of it, right? So the guilt chaser thing, you know, kind of brings us back down. So either way, we're comparing ourselves, 
Social comparison is a direct road to feeling unhappy. So, of course, we'd spend a class on this in my Positive Psych and Minecraft courses. Again, I work with mostly first years, but those two classes are a mix, I'd say, from 18 to 22 for the most part. And it's amazing what they say because they're aware. They're very aware that it brings them down. They're also aware that it's a time sucker, that they'll start a paper or studying for something and say, I'm only just going to go on the gram for 15 minutes or I'm just going to look at you know, whatever, for 15 minutes, Insta-chat. And then there goes two hours or four hours. They're very aware of the black hole or the wormhole that social media is. And even though they're aware of it, many of them will admit that they can't stop themselves. And, you know, I do a voluntary thing with, with raising hands in the beginning of this, and I'll say screen for screen time, all-inclusive, not counting um, work or schoolwork, okay? So that means leisure, all-inclusive means, you know, social media, video games, TV, whatever. So I'll ask them to put your hand up if you spend one hour. So every hand in the room goes up. I don't know that I've ever had a hand not go up, right? So this is strictly, you know, quote-unquote leisure. And then I ask them to keep them up while I amp up the numbers, right? So then do you spend two hours per day? So the hands all stay up usually, Three, the high majority still up. Four, the high majority still up. Then I'll say five, some come down. Six, some come down. Seven, some come down. And the majority of the time, I hit at least eight hours a day with a couple of hands in the nine ten zone. So just think about that. In fact, for you know the you know teenager, I mean, meaning middle school and high school kind of age. Right now, it'll be very a little bit depending on where you read it, but not much. The average, average, which means that this can be higher, right? To come up with an average, seven hours per day, again, not counting work or school, on screen time for your average teenager. So, right? So, seven hours, right, times seven days in a week. Think about that, right? 49 hours of screen time, that's more than a full time job you know, without days off or a 401k. This very false world of make pretend has become their reality. And, you know, if we just stop and think about what this is doing to these kids cognitively, 49 hours, most of us would be experts in whatever we were doing. You know, if we were bird watching, studying geology, studying you know, natural disasters, studying space, studying whatever we're studying, trying to find the cure for uh, the corona, okay, we would be experts pretty fast putting in 49 hours per week into anything, no matter what it was. So they've become experts at social comparison, experts at comparing their very real, still developing selves against a backdrop of the ideal. And this is largely why, this is not even a secret anymore, right? This is largely why so many of our teens and young adults today are very, very anxious and very, very depressed. So in the depression piece, they also can be very good at hiding it, right? Because the whole thing with social media, you know, is putting this, you know, metaphorically speaking, this airbrushed picture of yourself and your life up there, right? And if you've ever seen 
um, What Made Maddie Run about Madison Holleran. Uh, this is a fantastic documentary. And uh, it's about um, this just superstar senior who went off to UPenn. She was a track star. She was gorgeous. From the outside looking in, had it all, just her whole future in front of her. Um, off she goes to UPenn. And, you know, the college students, her friends are all posting things all over the place. These, you know, quote unquote, perfect, a bar none of us can reach, right? Quote unquote, perfect photos, happy, laughing, partying, um, you know, her track stuff, all this. Seemingly, this kid just had it all. She's going places when underneath it all, you know, she was very, very, very depressed. And, you know, sadly, this ended when... Maddie, I believe she climbed nine nine stories up and uh, took her life. And I'm sure, sure most of you are aware out there that though depression is complicated, obviously, um, there is no question that social media plays a huge role in our teenagers and young adults being depressed and college suicides are a, are a real, real problem right now. They're, um, they're happening a lot. And obviously, you know, the, the young adults often don't even allude to that. There's a problem going on. They tend to keep it to themselves and isolate. And then, and then that's it. And, you know, for, you know, parents of, of middle schoolers and, and high schoolers, or if they're younger, definitely, uh, it's a very, very good idea to limit the amount of time your kids have their phones and social media to, you know, that's a computer or whatever, but to limit it, find a drawer somewhere, unplug it, something. And, you know, an hour here, an hour there. And, and obviously, you know, uh, this is their culture. So to take it entirely away, unless it's a consequence for, you know, something to, but to limit it every day and having a converse, have a conversation with them about mental health and explain, and this depends on the age they are to, you know, what degree you get into that, but to explain that this is why, and then follow through with it and, and, you know, limit that phone use for young adults in college. And I've done it with ours because it's a different, you know, it's they're young adults and obviously independent and they have their own choices, you know, to have a heart to heart conversation with, you know, I've noticed you've been anxious. I noticed you, you've been da 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 da. I've noticed you're not sleeping with one of mine not that long ago. Actually, um, she, her sleeping pattern got all messed up with this pandemic. Well, come to find out, you know, she's been up on the phone at all wacky hours of night, and it's thrown her entire sleep pattern off. So this is a chance to have a real conversation. Say, you know, mom and dad are caring about you. Sit them down, or dad and dad are caring about you, and we think. You know, you should you should maybe um, leave the phone upstairs or downstairs or whatever. You know, after ten o'clock p.m. or something like that. Um, this is this is loving, not controlling. You know, and as mentioned, uh, my doctorate is in cognitive psychology and instruction. So the cognitive psych part of me, right? I, I love neurons, and, and it all comes down to neurons. And it's interesting how the universe works. As I was just sharing with you about our youngest child and I found one of my books upside down in her bed. She always has books upside down in her bed because she reads voraciously. And this book is uh, called The Shallows. I used it a solid decade ago 
in workshops. Um, it's by Nicholas Carr. And she had it upside down. I thought, wow. So I just kind of flipped it up this morning, actually. And it's interesting, um, again, how the universe works. Because there it was, like a sore thumb. And is now part of the episode here. And, of course, you know, in 2020, it's, you know, it's difficult for us to even picture life without the Internet, you know, technology. Uh, and Nicholas Carr actually says this, you know, how the how the all this activity, all this screen time on the Internet, how it's actually altering the brain's chemistry from a neuroscience perspective. It's actually changing our brains. And now since this has been going on for a while, you know, the current generation of iGens, like we said, are Gen Zs, were born into this. So they've had nothing but brain change going on from the Internet and screen time since the beginning. And Nicholas Carr says that this constant distractedness that the Internet encourages um, affects our state of being. And he borrows a phrase from Eliot's Four Courtlets that says that it's distracted from distraction by distraction. And it's a very different from the kind of contemporary, purposeful diversion of our mind that refreshes our thinking when we're weighing a decision. He says the net's cacophony—it's hard to say this word—the net's cacophony of stimuli short circuits both conscious and unconscious thought, preventing our minds from thinking either deeply or creatively. Our brains turn into simple signal processing units quickly shepherding information into consciousness and then back out again. And if we think about this, you know, from the mindfulness perspective, right? We, you know, we've been talking about this through, you know, thread through the episodes. That mean being mindful is about being engaged in the present moment as this moment is all we have, right? It sounds cliche, though it's true. The past is over and the future hasn't yet happened. This is life right now. So, if our, uh, you know, this young generation is, you know, pretty much disengaged from the present moment, the high majority of the time, they're not living. They are merely existing in this distracted state. And it's no big surprise that this is the most anxious and depressed generation of young adults the United States has ever seen. And, you know, I really like how this author you know, talks about the brain changes because this is real. I mean, if, even if we think about it, I think most of us seasoned folks out there know that, you know, um, you know, basically cursive writing was gotten rid of quite a while ago. And I remember that being a whole big part of third grade, you know, having, I think her name was Mrs. Whining back then, watching over my shoulder, making sure of my last name, Quinn, you know, that cue was tough, right? You had to stand the dots and everything. And there was so much focus on this. We had workbooks and we had to, you know, over and over again, repeat, practice. And now it's not even used. So there's something called neural pruning, which in plain and simple terms means if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is how the brain works. And it's just like cleaning out a closet in the spring. You know, when things we don't use don't need anymore, we get rid of it. And, you know, we make, we hopefully leave it alone and have it nice and feng shui. But if not, we make room for new things. And this is also important. So the brain kind of does its own feng shui or neural pruning. You know, just like we we, uh, trim the bushes in April, you know, and get rid of all the dead stuff. That's so new, you know, brand new branches and buds can, can happen. So the brain does the same thing. So Nicholas Carr says this. He says, you know, what we're not doing when we're online also has neurological consequences. 
just as neurons that fire together wire together, neurons that don't fire together don't wire together. As the time we spend scanning web pages crowds out the time we spend reading books, as the time we spend exchanging bite-sized text messages crowds the time we spend composing sentences and paragraphs, as the time we spend hopping across links crowds out the time we devote to quiet reflection and contemplation. The circuits that support those old intellectual functions and pursuits weaken and begin to break apart. The brain recycles the disused neurons and synapses for other, more pressing work. We gain new skills and perspective, but lose old ones. I think, you know, most of us have noticed, and I know we even make light of it, you know, where where I teach sometimes that, you know, you don't want to put too much in that email because, you know, they're not going to read it. Their attention, you know, their attention spans, and there's sometimes people say, you know, it's causing ADHD, and I just want to clear that up right away. In fact, I might do an episode on this soon. ADHD is genetic, and nothing causes ADHD that's, you know, diet or being on the internet. However, um, I will say that we can see ADHD, you know, tendencies or behavior, even though it's not the actual diagnosis itself. It's very true that this is a distracted generation. They're not living. It's so sad to me. And, um, you know, because as far as we know, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is the big game. And they're actually being conditioned to not live their lives, which is even sadder because it's become, you know, habitual at this point. You know, most of, you know, the, um, the contemporary great thinkers out there, you know, John Kabat-Zinn and Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra and his name go on and on and on, will say in some kind of way in their own words that a busy, crowded mind is a sad mind. So when I did my research a couple of years ago on social media use, and I, I did hone in on um, Facebook at the time, because I was, I was kind of told that it's a longer story, uh, but definitely, you know, uh, transferable to Instagram and Instachat and everything else, uh, is social media use went up. So did depression rates. And I'll tell you that obviously this was all anonymous. I even had a couple of students write in the margin anonymously. Am I the only one who got a perfect score on the, dep- on the depression scale? And then I had students you know, choose to come find me and talk about this. And, you know, the scores were high. And this, I also should share with you that we didn't just keep track of hours. We did keep track of hours uh, spent on the social media, but we also uh, used a multiphasic inventory that that the, the, the questionnaire survey questions were geared towards behavior. You know, as far as, you know, I, I check Facebook or whatever right before I go to bed or, I use Facebook or whatever right before, or sorry, to avoid boredom. And then there was one about escaping personal responsibilities, you know, that kind of thing. So it was really, it was bigger than simply the hours. It was about, you know, emotional engagement with social media. And in addition to the, you know, depression rates going up with social media use or Facebook use, um, the... Another variable we used was impulsivity and distractibility together. It's very difficult to separate these. So as students' social media use went up, so did their distractibility and impulsivity. And this is, you know, uh, all the way around. Um, and it, uh, just very, very upsetting. And also goes with what we were just talking about with the shallows 
is that neurons that fire together wire together and neurons that don't fire together don't wire together. And I think it's no big, you know, surprise. I think we all notice this, how incredibly distracted this generation is. So here I can kind of move over to the second theory uh, that I based my research on, in addition to social comparison, right, is the work of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and his theory of cognitive flow and cognitive absorption. So, you know, the majority of the time when you look up flow, it's in a positive light because it means kind of like when people say, I'm in the zone, and it's not just pleasure. It's different than pleasure. It's actually a step above pleasure. When we are doing something just for the sake of doing it, it's just pure joy. And we, when we're in this, we lose track of time. We lose track of ourselves, not in a codependent way, but in a, I'm so immersed in what I'm doing. You know, the clock's flying by and we're just kind of become one with whatever we're doing. Um, and I think of me teaching, of course, I'm doing podcasts, uh, flying across the room. And I make jokes with my students that I have to check the little time thing in the bottom of the computer because uh, I'll keep them forever. And Champlain, where I teach, is a clockless campus to keep us in the moment. And I'll just, I'm so in the zone with teaching, zip, zip, zip. Uh, that would be an example of flow. And again, uh, it's meant typically in a positive light. So I think of Michael Phelps swimming, you know, and the eight gold medals just in the zone, not thinking about anything, but just swimming. Just, he's not even thinking at all. He's just swimming. Or I think of young Michael Jackson, you know, seven years old, flying around the stage with not much of an idea about a paycheck or anything. He was just doing, you know, doing what he loved to do and flying around. Um, you know, Aretha Franklin, you know, same thing. And you, so you get the idea. It's not, it's much above pleasure or just feeling good or feeling happy. It's an actual state of mind that flow is. So again, you know, the high majority of time, it, this is positive, you know, to, to achieve flow is fantastic. And with our research, though, um, you know, not just students, you know, seasoned folks, whoever, you know, get, you know, get to using social media a lot can also lose track of time and lose track. And only this isn't in a positive way. Right. Um, and one of our variables was addiction to specifically to the social media that you're using. Right. So, Again, we did this with Facebook. Ironically, is you know, the young the young adults don't use this as much. Well, it's kind of I guess amazing because supposedly they don't, but they do because their addiction scores were high. You know, so the more social media, the more they went on social media, the more they got pulled in, the more they couldn't stop. And there were questions like um, just like with any other kind of addiction. I'm paraphrasing here because I'm not looking at the inventory right in front of me, but, you know, trying to make rules for myself and not being able to stop, which, you know, I've heard over and over and over from my gaming students when I had them um, because, you know, there's, I've had, I've had more than a few students in our gaming program who have, you know, gotten, you know, fallen into addiction with that and set rules about I'm only going to play from, you know, this time to that time in the morning, go to class, go to lunch, and then, that go, they go right through it. Well, it isn't different with social media. Transfer that to the gram or Insta chat or whatever. Setting rules for ourselves. And before you know it, two, three, four hours went by. You didn't get the paper done. You know, blah, blah, blah. So our last variable was life satisfaction. And I'm going to say, sadly, 
uh, well, when you research, let's put it this way, when you're researching something, obviously you have a prediction or hypothesis, right? And you want to find what you're, what you set out to find. So this is where it becomes bittersweet because we did find what we want to find. It was probably our, one of our, our big claim to fame with this project. And at the same time, it was just so sad. So with life satisfaction, you know, as a social media engagement went up, Overall life satisfaction just plummeted. Means that students really, really, really didn't like their lives. So the life satisfaction scale, uh, the author of this is Ed Diner. I can't remember if you pronounce it Diner or Diner. Anyway, he's done fabulous work with it, and it's widely, widely used. It's brief. So it's a Likert scale. So I'm sure most of you out there have seen surveys that say, you know, from one to seven, you know, one being on the low end or seven being on the high end or whatever. So I'm going to just quickly read you these five easy questions. Um, Okay, so uh, one is strongly disagree all the way up to seven, which is strongly agree. And obviously there's all variations of that leading up to strongly agree in the middle. So the very first question is, in most ways, my life is close to ideal. So one to seven, rank yourself. In most ways, my life is close to ideal. Seven being strongly agree. Okay, number two. The conditions of my life are excellent. One strongly agree, seven. Sorry, one strongly disagree, seven strongly agree. Three. I am satisfied with life. I'm satisfied with life. Four. So far, I've gotten the more, the important things I want in life. Number four is so far, I've gotten the important things I want in life. One is strongly disagree. Seven, strongly agree. And then two, three, four, five, six in the middle. Five. If I could live my life over, I would change almost nothing. If I could live my life over, I would change almost nothing. Now, sorry, too much for us to, to get to here, but if you want to, to uh, interpret the score, your own scores, uh, just Google uh, the Life Satisfaction Scale by Ed Diner, and you can find the scoring for that. So this is a widely used scale, again, because it's, it's brief. and it's So think of our results. You know, they, these as the social media use went up, the life satisfaction of the students participating just just plummeted. So again, after now that you know the questions, think of what that's saying, right? They don't like their lives. They really, really, really don't like their lives. Another interesting little tidbit, and I just throw it out there to my own to my own students when I'm teaching Minecraft or positive psychology that, and most of them are you know 18, 19 range. I guess actually positive positive psychology and Minecraft can go up to 22, but they're, they're traditionally young, right? heavy emphasis on first years. Um, I asked them, should they choose to become parents eventually? What might their policy for cell phone use for their own kids be? Before we go on with this, after just kind of reviewing the first part of this, uh, the podcast, I realized I've been saying Insta chat through this whole thing. And if my young adults were walking by when that happened, they would have been absolutely appalled that I said Insta chat out in public, which is just an accident. I was up very early. However, I'm just going to apologize for that. Obviously, it's Snapchat. And uh, I guess I'll know if they listen to it because um, they'll be 
so, so, so ashamed that their 55-year-old mother didn't know better than to say Instagram and Snapchat. So as far as the, uh, the question I ask my students about cell phones, it, it, there's a lot of irony here because they are very aware. Right? Again, I don't want to use the word addicted, lucid. Let's say, you know, again, feeling an enormous amount of pressure, though. We can say that an enormous amount of pressure 24-7 to stay connected. The high majority of my students admit that, and they admit that they can't stop this a lot. They can't, and, they, and some of them are successful when we do our personal care plans in Minecraft and positive psych, and they are able to kind of uh, deactivate certain apps and things like that. And they'll admit, though, though successful, that it's really, really hard. So here's the irony. They're aware that it's a life steal or a life minute steal, or they're very aware of this, at least in those two classes. And, and, you know, they, and that they're, you know, wrapped up in their phones, you know, most of the day, every day and, you know, checking as far as checking on and off, on and off, on and off. And at the same time, when I ask them, what would you do, you know, should you choose to be a parent? The high, high, high majority of them would, and no offense to their parents, we're all doing our best. I don't mean that in general. We're just talking about the cell phone thing. That's it. They love their parents, um, that they would do things differently, that they would, so the high, high majority involve having conversations and the high, high majority, meaning almost everyone, almost every one of my students talks about limiting their, 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 their children's cell phone use in some way. Quite often, the solution is whatever version, you know, 10 years or more from now, you know, that would kind of describe what a track phone is. They talk about having, letting their child have a, have a phone just for emergencies that cannot access the internet especially in the younger years, like up to high school. That's usually the mark for them is high school. So all through elementary and middle school, to have a phone on them, they can, you know, dial mom and dad or mom and mom or whoever, grandma, um, but not be able to access this, this, you know, world of make pretend and limitless world that's been, that has robbed them of so many of their own life minutes. You know, I just find this so interesting because it's coming straight from the horse, right? The horse is, you know, the 18 to 22s. Um, and it just fascinates me. I think I can count on out of all those years, all those students, I can maybe count on one hand minus even a couple of fingers students that would leave it alone. I mean, it's, uh, they're saying it so loudly that they wish they, they weren't in this place of being, you know, kind of handcuffed to their cell phones. Interestingly, too, you know, we're talking about, you know, the depression. We know that students are anxious, the impulsivity, distractibility, addiction, and then the life satisfaction. I'm just thinking of all these different conversations that are kind of like flying through my head one at a time and rather quickly. I'm thinking about what a student I had years ago, such a put-together young man, just so put-together. He was a first-year. I think if I remember right, he was a journalism major. Um, because in positive psych and Minecraft, I don't just get the psych majors. I get everybody. They're just a mix of everybody and they're taking it for a reason. And he very courageously shared, um, during class one day, we were talking about social media and well-being, and very courageously said, he said, I feel embarrassed because I'll go on, you know, Instagram or Snapchat, right. Or whatever, Twitter, whatever we're talking about. And he says, I'm embarrassed that I have the FOMO thing that I fear missing out when you know, it was a party, my friends were there. My friends just got maybe not even technical, quote unquote, party, just a gathering, you know, playing frisbee outside, you know, whatever. 
And right away, I feel like, you know, why didn't they invite me? Why didn't they tell me when it might not even have been that? It might have been spontaneous, you know, whatever. And he says, that just seems so middle school. And he said, I seems, he said, in my opinion, I'm, I'm pretty mature for 18. And he said, that has me feeling like something's wrong with me. Why do I still have this seventh grade? Oh, no. You know, does somebody not like me? Why didn't they ask me to come? And I was re- incredibly proud of him for that. And I, I watched his classmates, um, you know, really nod and look at him like, you know, of course, you can't assume what anyone's thinking. It has appeared that there was some definite connection. Like, I'm so glad you said that, you know, kind of like I've had moments of feeling like that, too. And again, spectrum thing, right? So, you know, shame isn't any different. It's still toxic from one end to the other, okay? But that's still the feeling something's wrong with us is still shame. You know, it's still like drinking turpentine for breakfast instead of orange juice, even if that's more on the diluted end, right? What's wrong with me? I feel like I'm in seventh grade again when he's this very intelligent young man with phenomenal writing skills, very engaging. Um, and, And this isn't healthy. It isn't healthy. And certainly, though, the 30, 40, 50, 60 somethings and on up may be less apt to admit this. It's, you know, it happens to all of us, too. You know, there's a picture up, you know, let's say with the 60 and 70 somethings, right? And they see that the other grandmother, you know, you know, was at the soccer game and she wasn't. It's not different. It's not different right across the boards. We, and again, back in the 50s, right? There's a good chance we may not have known this. If the soccer game was another town, not with the people that we know, blah, 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 um, we wouldn't have known this. And now it's in our face, faces 24-7. And, of course, my research, remember, based on these two things, social comparison, right, straight road to unhappy. There's a very, very small window for exception to that, okay, um, which is when, let's say, somebody gives us a, a gift certificate to a gym and we've been slacking a little bit, maybe a little bit of a couch tater, you know, couch tater tot. And then we go and we're, you know, we're kind of on the cusp of trying to want to get going. We just haven't been able to. And then we're comparing ourselves to the people in the gym that are looking fit. And that can also go the other way. But let's say for the, for this person, if they're on the cusp of getting going with something can actually push them that extra, you know, millimeter to get going. That would be an example of, you know, having sort of a positive response to that. However, for the high, high, high majority of the time, social comparison is a straight road to sad and even depressed, as we talked about with Maddie Holleran. You know, when I did my, my research, I did go in deeper. It's too much to get into now because I realized we're already getting past the 35-minute moment. I try to be mindful of that, is there's all these you know, kind of offshoots of, of, of influence from social media with uh, self-image and self-esteem. So, of course, self-image is how we view ourselves. That's pretty easy to figure out, right? Every time we, you know, look at a profile, look at anything, right, it's immediate. It's, it's immediate that our mood shifts because of, you know, that instant comparison. And, of course, self-esteem or self-concept are different. That's what we believe about ourselves. Self-image is how we see ourselves or envision ourselves. Self-esteem is, you know, what we, you know, believe about ourselves or self-concept. And these, these are both affected as well. And the thing is, when we think about the amount of time that teenagers and young adults are spending on the screens, think about this incoming information daily, this barrage 
of unfiltered information flowing into their, you know, their cognitive space. Think about the toll that this takes on our well-being, regardless of one's age. So remember, you know, through the through the thread of episodes here, that it's not about perfection, right? If we want to, we find ourselves immersed in social media, we are aware that we are checking it, you know, constantly, 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 um, and that this has affected us. Our happiness level is is down there, not where we would like it to be. We're maybe aware of sadness, maybe aware of jealousy. That's another thing which is too much to get into now with my research. That the enviousness level goes up high too, which directly affects. Um, you know, one's mood. And remember that we're not searching for, we're not trying to reach the perfect bar. Nobody can. So don't even, it's not even worth trying, right? Progress, not perfection. So once we have the awareness that we're being sucked into the, to the wormhole of social media, we can just having that awareness, give yourself a big pat on the back. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm aware of this now and I want to make a change. So, you know, with this awareness, if you want to become, you know, happier, and I would say to start imposing some, you know, restrictions on social media and just plain unplug the drug. This is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day. Mm-hmm.